This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Jeffers Lennox about his book titled North of America, Loyalists, Indigenous Nations, and the Borders of the Long American Revolution, which has just come out in 2022 from Yale University Press. And this is a really interesting book because it takes something that a lot of people, especially Americans, are probably quite familiar with, the story of the 13 colonies' struggle for independence, and expands the story in some really interesting ways, quite literally, in some senses, zooms out from the 13 colonies and reminds us that there's a whole bunch of land and a whole bunch of different peoples surrounding those 13 colonies that are very much part of this story. So Jeffers, I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast to expand our knowledge and bring us into this wider story that you've written about. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's a a thrill to be here and talk about the book. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So I, um, I, I guess one of the obvious reasons that I wrote the book is uh, is that I'm Canadian, and um, I was on the job market about tw- ten years ago, twelve years ago, um, <clears throat> and living in Canada at the time. And my specialty then was um, early Nova Scotia and Acadia, and I was uh, I decided I would apply for jobs in the U.S. and had to think about how to convince American schools to hire a Canadian as their early Americanist. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll just, I could just tell them I'm going to write a book on the American Revolution. Um, and I, I sort of worked that into my job talk and said I had this idea for writing a book about Canada and the creation of the United States and telling the story from a different angle. Um, and then when I when I was ultimately hired in the States, I realized that I would actually have to follow through on that. Um, so I, I went into the project with the question of uh, of how how in what ways did the place that became Canada matter in the 18th century to uh, to rebelling patriots, to the British, to indigenous nations? Um, and, and how did the, the reality of the sort of continental nature of this uprising shape the, the outcome and subsequently how we think about the American Revolution? That's a pretty compelling question to go into a project with. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. I think um, it's, quite off, it's quite interesting to hear how people come to projects. Um, I think students often assume like, oh, it's a book. 
it must have started off as a fully formed thing. And it's like, well, <laughs> no, no actually. It was really, it was a sales pitch. And then they called my bluff and I had to do it. Well, um, you've responded well to them calling your bluff. You've got a whole <laughs> lovely book about it. So. Yeah, it did work out. It did work out. <laughs> well, let's get into um, that book. Uh, and thinking about this idea of kind of the continentalness, I suppose, um, of the founding of the United States, you know, as I said, as the intro, as you just mentioned, um, we think of it often as kind of the 13 colonies being the thing. But of course, there's a, there's literally other large portions of land connected to these 13 colonies um, and a lot of things that happen later. So how does it kind of at a big picture level change and I think reading the book enhance our understanding of the founding of the United States by thinking in continental terms? Yeah, um, I, I, I think part of what I was thinking about going into the project was in some ways, responding to the reality of, you know, living in 21st century North America, um, where growing up in Canada, it is impossible to ignore the United States. Um, but then when I moved to the United States, I realized living in America, it's actually very easy to ignore Canada. So I had students and colleagues with all kinds of questions about Canada that just seemed common knowledge. Um, and I, I, I was pretty sure that that wasn't always the case. Um, and so by asking these questions about what was happening outside of the rebelling colonies, um, I think it allows us to remind ourselves that this was a moment that really did depend on how people thought not only locally, but sort of continentally. So not only the the political figures, um, the, the John Adams or George Washingtons uh, or Ben Franklin um, specifically, they were certainly thinking about Canada. They were um, concerned about the British colonies there. They were eager to have them join in the rebellion. But so too did just regular subjects, regular British Americans, not and not even just the ones living in the Northeast or along the borders of uh, British provinces or indigenous homelands. But Canada shows up as a as a subject in newspapers in the Carolinas and in Georgia, and there is this this sort of continental awareness that I found quite striking. Um, and I think when you start to think about this revolutionary uprising in a continental sense, it then has sort of two stories. It has the story that that Americans are familiar with, the 13 colonies eventually forming a nation. But the second story is this parallel account of what happened to the people who didn't choose to rebel and how did that place develop. And I think what becomes clear when you expand that scope is that especially in the 18th and for the better part of the 19th century, both of these places are influencing each other. So we tend to think now that the United States just kind of influences everywhere else, but it was very susceptible to what was happening in other places. And they they kept their eyes and ears open so that they could adjust um, and find ways to define themselves against what would become Canada. Hmm. I found this in a lot of ways, one of those moments of going, oh, I never thought about that before. But as soon as I have, this makes so much sense. Why haven't I thought of this before? Uh, 
Right, which was a fascinating way to then read kind of a lot of the details, um, some of which obviously we'll get into, uh, though this will probably be a bit more of a highlights tour. So listeners, if you want all of the stories, all of the names and dates and places, um, the book has them. We will get to probably the main points um, in the interview. And so obviously the first place, or at least to me, the obvious first place to start is in 1776 with the patriot politicians and leaders. Why were they, as you say in the book, quote, interested in and frustrated by the Canadian colonies? Yeah, I think this is, there was this assumption among uh, particularly the patriot leaders and specifically those looking to Canada to participate in the uprising. Um, they they look north and at this point, Canada is basically the shorthand for what is now the province of Quebec. It was specifically sort of the French speaking part of British North America. Um, and they were looking north at at these uh, these Quebecois habitants and thinking, you have always hated Great Britain, um, and you were just very recently conquered by Great Britain, and um, surely this is a great opportunity for you to seek some revenge. And so Congress, you know, when the first Continental Congress is called uh, in 1774, they start writing letters to uh, to French Canadians, reminding them about all the things that they don't have that they should have under the British. Because when the British conquered Canada, they didn't introduce an assembly. There was no trial by jury. Um, it was sort of a, a military rule. And so it seemed like easy pickings for patriots to say, come join us and we'll all fight against the British. Um, so that's where they were interested in. But they were frustrated because the the French Canadians just, they didn't buy it. They weren't interested in joining uh, the patriot cause, most of them anyway. Um, they were governed. Yes, they were governed by this sort of quasi-military government, but they had always had a version of that. They had never had an elected assembly, so they didn't really miss that because they didn't have it. Um, Plus, the British had promised them that they could keep practicing their Catholic faith. Um, They could keep speaking French. They could maintain their sort of specific civil law. And so they had done a pretty good job. The British had done a good job of winning over the religious figures that had a lot of influence over the regular French Canadians. And so you know, with these letters that Congress sends, and they send three of them, um, each, you know, the first one is a, is a fairly confident letter, of course, you're going to want to come and join us, please send delegates. Um, the second letter, which comes in 1775, uh, is basically a version of, you know, uh, you did get our letter, right? We, we couldn't help but notice that nobody's come. And it's at this point that they decide to invade, uh, invade Quebec. Um, so they, they do think that, it makes sense that Quebec should join. And this refusal of Quebec to join is what really frustrates a lot of patriot leaders. I mean, if no one responds to your letter, I can see why you might be somewhat perturbed. I'm, I'm not sure that the normal response is to invade. No, this this is that, you know, when I, when I teach this stuff, it's sort of like here, if you want to know... Uh, how how old the American idea of sort of spreading democracy is, it was like one of the first things that they did when they decided they wanted to be a, a certain kind of democracy themselves. Um, 
So they do, you know, and actually the third letter is one of my favorites because the third letter, which comes in 1776, arrives after the failed invasion of Canada. Um, And it basically says, you may have noticed that we just launched a failed invasion, uh, but we're not giving up on you. We hope that uh, we hope that you'll reconsider at some point in the future. Um, So there is this this sort of insistence that Canada should be a member of the rebelling colonies. And it just it never happens. Well, and, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, the idea of America being a democracy that likes to spread other democracy, its version of democracy to other countries by force. Um, I mean, spoiler alert, it fails in Canada. Again, if you want to teach students about where that starts. Um, but I was really interested. Well, I wasn't particularly surprised by the failure because obviously Canada is not part of the United States and one would, yeah, you know, failure of a military expedition probably contributes to that. Um but you go further. You have a more interesting argument than simply, and that's why there is Canada as a separate thing. And from the book, you write, quote, the failure to take Canada suggested that independence was never at the root of the rebellion, though paradoxically, independence made that failure easier to swallow. Take us through this argument. Okay, so this is, I mean, this is a bit of a tricky argument, I think. Um, And I will certainly get some pushback. Um, But part of this is, again, telling the story from an outsider's perspective. I did not grow up with the, you know, with the the typical American history with its focus on independence as this founding moment. So when I started doing the research um, for this book, I was able to just read a little bit more deeply into the primary sources um, and read widely, you know, some some um, some British accounts of uh, of the rebellion and the war, and it becomes quite clear that the the initial complaints coming from rebels is that you know this is in seventeen from the seventeen late seventeen sixties into the early seventeen seventies is they're upset because they're not being treated like true British subjects. They believe that they are British. And in fact, many of them are, you know, if you go into the southern colonies in in the heat there, they are dressed in British attire. They're importing British clothing and goods. They really, you know, they believe themselves to be so British. Um, and so this war begins or the, the, the upset that's leading to this conflict is really over not being considered British enough and demanding that they be treated like Britons. Um, the invasion of Quebec is a challenge because even Washington, uh, he writes in a letter that um, invasion is sort of a step of conquest rather than defense, and that drastically changes the nature of the war. And he's he is aware of this. Um, and after this invasion happens, which is, you know, capturing Quebec is a very difficult thing to do. It's, it had been tried by the British many times. Um, Quebec is a fortress. It's on the side of a cliff and the St. Lawrence River is, is notoriously difficult to navigate. Um, so the Americans, you know, they don't succeed in this conflict. And a lot of the, by the time that this, um, this, this theater of war had been uh, sort of at center stage, there had been some complaints from the British um, that like, obviously this has just been about independence the whole time. And some of the, the the rebels themselves take the loss as a way to say, look, if you actually thought that independence was our goal, 
we would have had a better military. We would have been better prepared to launch this kind of a fight. Um, what they argue they really wanted to do was to win Quebec to enhance their negotiating position against Great Britain. But at the same time, and here we have sort of um, just an accident of timing, as the the news about Canada's or, or the, the failure, the Patriot failure in Canada is trickling down into the colonies. This is January 1776, and this is when Thomas Paine publishes Common Sense. And so you have this idea, this really strong formulation of an idea for independence uh, published in this immensely popular pamphlet at the same time that um, this this failed invasion has uh, has occurred. And some people start putting this together. They start seeing, oh, you know, if we're going to have independence, it should certainly include Quebec and it should certainly include places like Nova Scotia. But a lot of the, or some of the politicians um, or the diplomats in Congress write, you know, we we failed here, but our soldiers are now coming back to an independent uh, country and by country at this point they mean whatever state the uh, the soldiers are coming back to, and that independence gives them some hope, right? It takes the sting out of the failure of Quebec because they now have a, a new goal that is not just to gain territory to negotiate a better position with Britain, but is in fact to separate from Britain entirely. I mean, I can see why you might get pushback, but. There is something quite interesting about that, given sort of the evidence and the timing and how the pieces go together. Um, yeah, certainly. And one of the, I mean, one of the things that happens as well is um, so Thomas Paine publishes anonymously after um, after the failed invasion of Quebec, during which Richard Montgomery, who is one of the generals, um, is killed and becomes one of the first martyrs of uh, of the conflict. Um, Thomas Paine publishes this um, imaginary dialogue in the, I think it's in the Pennsylvania Gazette, and then it gets picked up um, throughout colonial newspapers. And in this imaginary dialogue, we have the ghost of Richard Montgomery talking to a delegate to Congress. And Montgomery says, you know, don't let my death be in vain. I didn't die in Canada for all of you to um, to, to sort of... Um, renegotiate and reconcile with Great Britain, um, my death will be in vain if, if this if this mission for independence isn't a success. So there are people like Payne who are making these very specific arguments, but he's picking up, I think, on themes that others um, are noticing and employing for the, the purpose of making independence a goal that can really rally people. Hmm. Well, and speaking of independence, of course, there is the Declaration of Independence. Um, And I admit, coming into this book, I was not expecting Canada or the importance of Canada to have anything to do with the Declaration of Independence. I am definitely wrong. Can you explain to everyone else how we can see the importance of Canada, even in this particular document? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, the first part is it is it's absolutely related to the the failed invasion of Quebec and and to Tom Paine's um, common sense. And common sense tends to be the story that uh, sort of kicked independence into high gear. Um, but there are other connections as well. So after the failed invasion, as we move into the spring, sort of late winter, early spring of seventeen seventy six. 
Congress sends um, a delegation of diplomats to go to Quebec. So the, the the military invasion has failed. They think, okay, well, let's try to send some people up and see if we can just rally them through diplomacy. So they send, you know, the the, the leader of this commission to Canada is Benjamin Franklin. Um, so they are sending the sort of the heavy hitters. And Franklin is accompanied by Samuel Chase um, and John Carroll and Charles Carroll of Carrollton. And, and these two, the Carrolls, I think they're cousins, um, are important because they're Catholic. And so they want to make sure that the people who are talking to French Canadians can say, you know, Catholics are welcome. Look at us. Look at Maryland. There is a Catholic population. Um, so they send this delegation up. And Franklin, this is this is the trip to uh, this is Franklin's trip to Canada, where he purchases his famous Martin fur cap. And if you've seen a portrait of Benjamin Franklin after you know made after 1776, he's often wearing this fur hat. Um, and he had no fun on this trip. He uh, he was sick during most of it. It took about a month for them to get from Philadelphia to Montreal, and Franklin only spent eleven days there. Uh, and he quickly he quickly sort of realized, oh, this you know this mission isn't going to work. So he heads back. And then by the time he gets back to Philadelphia, he's only been there for a few days um, when he is put on the uh, the committee of five, which are, which are the um, the five members tasked with sort of drafting the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration itself is, is, is authored by Thomas Jefferson because he was sort of recognized as the best writer. But while he is working on the Declaration, you know, he never gets sort of dedicated time to do it. Um, he is, he sort of, he, he works on it in between committee meetings and He's serving on two or three committees while he is drafting this declaration that have to do with the fallout from Canada. Um, so what went wrong there? Who's to blame? That sort of thing. So his mind is very much um, engaged in ideas about Canada. And so not surprisingly, when the declaration comes out, it you know it has this sort of famous preamble at the top, but it's really just, it's a list of grievances. And two of those grievances speak to what had been happening in Canada. Um, the first is this complaint about uh, the way that Great Britain has created this sort of massive Catholic province that runs along the back of the colonies. And then the second is um, is Britain's use of indigenous warriors. And that has also sort of the indigenous warriors and the French had often been sort of considered uh, together as a group. So you know the dec- you, you can't go too far in this argument the declaration of independence is certainly about securing independence for the 13 um, rebelling colonies but you can also trace the threads back to to, to demonstrate that that Jefferson and, and Franklin and others are thinking more broadly about the their, the position of their colonies relative to these places that have not declared independence with them hmm. well and i think the pure fact of timing makes that very clear that they were discussing these issues in other committees and then going away and working on the declaration and then coming back, right? This is all happening at the same time, which is, I think, something that we don't remember when we read about it in a textbook and it seems all like calm and considered. Yeah, I mean, you have to think about how much work these delegates are doing in Congress um, and how little time they've got to try to put all this together. 
And particularly with the declaration, you'd think like they gave Jefferson a week to to go and write it and think about it. But he was really, um, I think it's Pauline Mayer's book uh, about the declaration where she says something like he was able to poke at it in dull moments during um, other congressional matters. So uh, it really is, it's sort of remarkable when you think about it as the product of like a lived reality, just people doing work. And that was one of the jobs that had to be done. So when you look at it that way, you have to think about what else is, is uh, are these people dealing with? Well, and as you show in the book, that state of affairs doesn't stop um, when sort of the Declaration of Independence to a degree works and independence is um, being recognized and secured through peace negotiations, that Canada is very much still a part of those discussions and that there are a lot of things happening at once. So could you tell us a bit about kind of the problems that Canada poses even at the end of the war? Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is. It's uh, <laughs> and this, I got a real kick out of this. Like Ben Franklin just loved Canada. He he really he kind of personally wanted it to be. Uh, it, it drove him. The idea of Canada joining the colonies seemed to be sort of an obsession for him. Um, and you know, this this goes back earlier. He he had property. He'd invested. He'd been sort of a land speculator, investing in um, in Nova Scotia in the 1760s. Um, he had thought long and hard about um, the borders between. British and French states in the 1760s as well. So he has some ideas about Nova Scotia and Acadia and the the boundary there. Um, and then his his trip to Montreal, uh, where he gets this Martin Fur hat, I think really helps solidify for him because you know they're they're traveling up a waterway that obviously connects New York, uh, New York State, what is now New York State, and what is now Quebec. And the economics of it really seemed to make sense. Um, so after he returns from uh, from Montreal, he spends a little time in Philadelphia, helps draft the Declaration of Independence. They then put him on a ship and send him over to France um, to negotiate an alliance with France. And then as the war carries on, to help negotiate the peace. And it's at this moment that you really get this insight that he's 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 maintained this belief that Canada should be part of the rebelling colonies, um, and he's paired with a British negotiator. This um, his his name is uh, Richard Oswald, and Richard Oswald's I think he's sort of a younger guy. He's very wealthy. Um, I mean, younger compared to Franklin, anyway. And uh, he keeps a diary during these negotiations that he has. And his, his diary is great because he'll recount these meetings that he has with Franklin, especially in, you know, getting into 1781. Um, and he'll say things like, oh, you know, we were talking about all this. And then Dr. Franklin, he brought up Canada again, as he always does, and uh, said, you know, there's no way we could have peace if Britain keeps Canada because we can't have neighbors like that. Um, and so this, you know, this back and forth between, and it really is sort of Franklin driving this. John Adams and Henry Lawrence um, also agree that it would be difficult to have a peace if Britain maintained its colonies, but it really is Franklin that's that's pushing this idea. And it's it's only because, I mean, I, I'm fairly convinced it's only because Franklin gets sick near the end of these negotiations. He's got gout and I think he, you know, it flares up and he has to step back, at which point 
John Adams and John Jay take over, and they're really just interested in, in finishing the deal. So um, at that point, Canada sort of the acquisition of Canada drops out of uh, of the peace treaty. John Adams is very concerned with making sure that Americans can catch and dry fish in Newfoundland. You know, he's a New Englander, so fishing is always sort of in the back of his mind. Um, but Franklin just, you know, he he is unable to secure Canada in the peace, but it's not for lack of trying. He does seem to really try quite hard, which I found very interesting. <laughs> yeah, he really does. You know, he's I, I started liking him more, actually. I mean, not that I didn't like him, uh, but just when you when you see these figures, these kind of mythical figures, then you realize, oh, you had a weird obsession, like just mm. like we all have something kind of odd that we're we're really into his was just like how can we get canada and i feel i feel i feel as though a lot of people humored him in that um especially closer to the end of the war i mean this idea of getting canada never fully disappears before the war of 1812 but he was um he was definitely the driving force i think Definitely interesting to think about especially you mentioned his hat earlier and you actually detail in the book that he goes makes a conscious decision to kind of continually be um, visually represented with that hat. And it actually marks a change in how he presents himself to the world. And it's like, and now this is my thing. I have the hat. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. And you can sort and of think is... about that. And, you know, you probably know someone who has a particular item of clothing that they're maybe strangely attached to. And okay. Yeah. Like there's always people who, you know, their thing is they wear shorts for as long as possible. You know, they'll get into late November, early December, but they're still in shorts. Um, and I kind of feel like Franklin's Franklin's hat was, you know, that that helped that did help identify him. Um, and I just sort of got a kick out of the fact that this thing that really identifies him as an American is this piece of clothing that he got while he was trying to negotiate with Canada. I liked that sort of symmetry. Well, in fact, it speaks to a larger point um, that you make and that you've already mentioned a little bit, the idea that Canada being there in a lot of ways shapes American identity, um, sort of an opposition to Canada and reaction to Canada in a whole bunch of ways. So I'm wondering maybe if we continue our sort of chronological movement, you can tell us a bit about how the threat of Canada shaped American identity even after America became its own country. Sure, yeah. And I think here um, it's useful to think about the the pairing that I mentioned earlier where um, where Americans see Canada and Indigenous peoples as, or see British, you know, the British in Canada and Indigenous peoples as this uh, combined force, which speaks to, I think, um, their own sort of blinkered understandings of indigenous independence, um, but also the the difficulty that patriots had in securing alliances, lasting alliances with indigenous nations. Um, but after 1783, if we go that far, um, there is this general fear that with the British just to the north of them, and this stretches from, you know, the Great Lakes region all the way to uh, to Nova Scotia, that there remains this, this sort of contested, um, this contested territory inhabited by what are seen as two enemies. And there's always a threat of, uh, of their, their territorial expansion. And, um, 
at this stage, the the Americans have a hard time understanding indigenous nations as separate actors who have their own political agenda and their own goals. And so if, if there's an attack by indigenous forces anywhere near Canada, it's seen as, oh, they're just, they're proxy warriors, right? Britain can't send their own soldiers down. So they are sending um, indigenous fighters. And so that's sort of a constant, um, a constant threat. But it does not, um, it's not really until the Americans start thinking about crafting a constitution that you see sort of a change in the way that Canada is viewed. Um, In the early 1780s, when Congress is governed by the Articles of Confederation, which was sort of a very loose um, governing body that helped hold these 13 independent states together. They had in those Articles of Confederation a very specific um, item that said Canada can join at any time, right? In anywhere else that wants to join, nine states have to agree. There'd be some discussion, but Canada can always come in. Um, But when they start thinking about drafting a new constitution, and then once it's drafted and it's being debated, Canada then really does become a threat. There's nothing in the constitution that says Canada can join. They've sort of given up on, on that argument. Um, But in the ratification process, the discussion is a whole lot more about if we don't come together as a country, the British and Canada will be able to start picking us off one by one. Um, And they have some examples of that. Vermont in the uh, 1780s, uh, late 1770s, early 1780s, really flirts with joining Canada. Um, They have sort of official meetings with the governor. and uh, and so there is this idea that um, that Canada is always there as a threat. And so in some ways, you know, the obviously the creation of the Constitution was to create a nation. But the way that Canada is discussed in this process is if we are not a united country with sort of common defense um, and, and, a, and a government that can, in fact, raise taxes and do the kinds of things that are necessary, we may find ourselves picked off one by one as Britain is able to convince other places to join. Um, and of course, Spain is another threat to the, to the South. So it goes to show that the, the confidence that emerges in the United States wasn't there in, in the 1780s. This was, you know, in some ways sort of a defensive measure to ensure that, this, uh, that these independent states didn't fully pull apart. Hmm. And again, I think that's something that is often forgotten, the idea that this was quite a risky enterprise at the beginning. Um, There was no sense that, oh, definitely this will work. There is a clear identity. It's not going to, you know, (laughs) this is is where the borders will stay. This is exactly how that's going to work. Right. No, exactly. And there are, you know, they're they're getting letters. Um, A lot of the, you know, when they're talking about um, crafting a constitution, they do make reference to like, the way that the American or the the United Colonies um, or are discussed in places like Nova Scotia or Montreal, where they're seen as this sort of this ragtag group of independent states, and they're all out for themselves, and you know the internal tension is surely going to blow the whole thing up. So there is, I think, a concerted effort at that point to um, to make sure that independence sticks and then can be. Um, can be marshaled towards a, a bigger project, which you know ultimately ends up being the creation of of a nation. Mm. 
And of course, one of the um, next milestone moments in that larger project is the Louisiana Purchase. Again, mm-hmm. not a piece of American history I was expecting Canada to have any particular influence in. Right. Yeah. And this, you know, the story of the Louisiana Purchase, it's been told a few a few different ways. The there's the traditional story um, of of uh, Americans sort of being like half surprised that um, Napoleon is willing to sell it, but then the purchase becomes that becomes the story of Jefferson's America, right? This is the the looking west and creating a nation of of independent farmers um, and this very specific vision, which is wholly sort of it's it's like the distillation of a settler colonial ideal, thinking that you've bought this immense empty place um, and can refashion it as you see fit. When what the Americans really purchased was were acres and acres and acres of uh, of indigenous homelands that they would then have to figure out um, how to control. But in the purchasing of um, of of Louisiana, which is really a direct result of the the Haitian Revolution, um, Napoleon no longer needs Louisiana to feed the enslaved workers of Saint Domingue, um, so he's willing to to sell it. There is a question of whether or not um, Congress can buy a country, uh, a territory that large. And that's a very specific, you know, Jefferson does some tricky business um, to to bypass Congress to purchase Louisiana. But one of the questions that they do have is sort of the technicalities of how this can happen. And at this point, they they look back at these Articles of Confederation um, that that governed the rebelling colonies during the war. And they look to, I think it was article 11 that said, you know, at any point Canada can join. Um, and the argument is, well, you know, if, if we always had an idea of expansion in mind, if it was always going to be possible for us to get bigger by the acceptance of Canada, then why can't we sort of expand in different ways and take over this territory. So there is that sort of ideological argument there that um, that helps weave Canada back into this story. Fascinating. I definitely had not expected that. And again, as you laid it out in the book, I was like, ah, this actually makes a lot of sense, um, <laughs> but not pieces I'd put together. So thank you for that. Oh, good. Um, continuing, I guess, to my last chronological question, really. Um, obviously, if we're talking about the early United States and Canada, we can't really leave out the War of 1812. Can you explain to us why you consider this both an ending and a beginning? Sure, yes. The um, So the War of 1812... I think is seen uh, or can be understood as the end of the American Revolution, right? This is, and that in, in a lot of ways, that's us looking back because we know that this is the last meaningful conflict between the United States and British North America, and then later Canada. Um, but it does have at its heart some of the same goals and aspirations that were evident um, at the beginning of the revolution. Uh, not least of which is, again, the acquisition of Canada. Um, And, you know, uh, Canadians sort of grow up with stories of the War of 1812. We're much more familiar with that war than with the American Revolution because it's seen as a moment where 
different parts of uh, of what would become Canada fight together against this invading force. So you have French Canadians and English Canadians and Indigenous nations um, seemingly fighting together to resist American expansion. And so in that sense, um, it's an ending. It's an ending of the American goal of northward expansion and the acquisition of, of Canada. Uh, and from that point on, the United States is going to have to accept that it is limited geographically um, and it's within that geographic boundary that will shape its national identity and its ideology. Um, and I think it is a beginning because it's that at that moment where these two places start to develop in parallel paths, but, but separately. Um, and I think for... Um, I mean, I guess the the losers of it's always a debate over who won or lost the War of eighteen twelve, um, and it's the one war where Canadians like to say, "Oh, we beat the Americans," although that's not entirely clear, right? It sort of ended in a stalemate, but it's certainly um, it's sort of the beginning of the end for a lot of Indigenous nations, and I don't mean that in terms of their their sort of cultural survival and perseverance. Um, but I do mean that in the ability, it's the end of the indigenous ability to play two sides against each other. Because if those two groups, if British North America and and the United States are no longer at war, um, indigenous nations find themselves with less to negotiate. And one of the tragedies, I think, that come from this war is the British totally turning their back on their indigenous allies. They no longer need them as warriors. Um, they no longer need to need to give or sort of gives the wrong word, but to sort of recognize indigenous territorial sovereignty as a way of defending against American expansion. Um, so it's at this point where you really start to see new conflicts between indigenous nations and the British over um, what their what indigenous peoples are are owed, you know, what their homelands are, what the territorial boundaries are. And so we have sort of a, a beginning of this this new continental relationship that's going to see uh, the American nation grow west and expand. Um, what will eventually become Canada is going to grow west and expand. And both of those processes involve taking land from indigenous peoples um, and, and sort of relegating them to second and third class uh, citizens in these countries that are really just superimposed on indigenous homelands and, and um, claiming land that had never been surrendered. So it, there's, I think there's a lot of ways to look at how the War of 1812 recasts the continental, um, the continental calculus, um, but it certainly does mark an endpoint for nation national growth and a beginning for this this sort of parallel or even tripartite uh, growth among Americans and Canadians and Indigenous nations. Hmm. Okay, that's a more interesting summary um, of the War of 1812 than I certainly was taught um, or learned about. So very helpful contribution um, as part of the book and certainly I imagine to your students. They, I mean, they, they like to, it's interesting, you know, they're, they're, they, they like these stories. Um, I think they appreciate, uh, you know, I always make jokes that I'm glad that they leave a class and they know, they now know about Prince Edward Island and they wouldn't have known that a 
you know, otherwise. Um, but I do think, especially in the current context, in especially in Canada, but increasingly in the United States, of recognizing, um, you know, the sort of indigenous rights movements and indigenous sovereignty movements, it, it's really helpful for students to have this full picture of how we got to this point um, and why there are these these sort of uprisings among indigenous nations in Canada and the United States and why they matter um, and, and how sort of a deeper understanding of the history can put these students in a better position to appreciate the settler colonial past and think about ways to try to make it right. Well, that's a fabulous summation um, of many of the things that one can get from reading this book. So thank you for um, concluding it in such a wonderful way. And that really only leaves me with one question, um, kind of a mean question, but hopefully not the hardest question. Um, The book has obviously just come out, but is there anything you are currently working on or hope to work on next or anything like about your future work um, that you might be able to give us a sneak peek of? Yeah. Oh, that's a great, I mean, it's a great question. I like thinking about future work. I did, you know, I finished this book and and didn't do much for a while, uh, which was nice. I gave myself time to sort of think about what my interests were and what kind of questions I had um, that that I thought could sustain a, a longer project. So I am, I'm at the very sort of early um, fishing expedition stage of, uh, of thinking about a project on the indigenous roots of American radical thought. Um, and so some of this comes from the work I did in North of America. Um, but it also, I think, is, is, is my reflection on on sort of where we are in Canada and the United States um, in terms of trying to create a a holistic understanding of the way that different groups are interacting with each other. So I'm I'm just, I'm looking at probably sort of the contact period up until maybe the end of the war um, and looking at how indigenous nations allowed for the creation of sort of a, uh, the creation and, a, and an encouragement of a specifically American form of radical thought. So this could include things like introducing concepts of religious toleration and spirituality, um, the indigenous practice of the commons and how that spoke to settlers who had just, you know, who had come over in the 17th century having had the commons sort of eradicated um, a century earlier, looking at the indigenous commercial and economic frameworks, um, their their gender dynamics, all the kinds of things I think that allowed for, for settlers with a certain sort of already developed sense of radical thought to have this whole new foundation of ways to explore different ways of social organization or political organization or economic organization. Um, so that's what I think I'm going to do. Uh, but you could ask me in, in, in a year and I could be onto something totally different, but right now this is keeping my interest. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. Well, if that's, what's keeping your interest, that definitely seems like the thing worth pursuing. Um, so <laughs> I agree, yes. exactly. So best of luck with that project, wherever it may take you. Um, oh, thank you. and in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled North of America, Loyalists, Indigenous Nations, and the Borders of the Long American Revolution, just out in 2022 from Yale University Press. Dr. Jeffers Lennox, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation.